Again, my name is Joseph Blaschke. Um, I am an associate pastor here at First Presbyterian Church. Um, Seth Ellsworth in the back and Ryan Ellsworth here at the front are our teachers uh, during this uh, Worldview Conference. And yesterday they shared with us about the history of postmodernism and about postmodernism's view of authority. And today we're going to be talking about postmodernism and the law and postmodernism and morality. And I'm very excited to get started. So um, with that, um, a reminder that there is a restroom upstairs if you turn left and left. And there are two restrooms downstairs if you take the stairs down and hit the back corners. If you have any questions, get with me or other First Presbyterian folks are up here at the front. Um, we will take a break after the first session to fellowship downstairs with um, snacks and whatnot, and uh, that'll be great. So uh, let's pray together and let's uh, dive into the word. Father God, I thank you again for gathering us, your people, together uh, to explore these things that impact our lives and our culture and our world around us, and to explore them with the view of you as the ultimate authority and your holy scriptures as your chosen means of revealing yourself and your will to us. Uh, may we be subject to that authority through our study. May the Holy Spirit in our hearts convict us uh, to think rightly and to renew our minds after the image of Jesus Christ who loved us and gave himself up for us and in whose holy name we pray. Amen. Amen. Ryan, it floor is yours. Thank you. Thank you, Joseph. Thank you guys for hosting us here. Um, if you weren't here last night, my name is Ryan Ellsworth. I'm a pastor in Santa Fe, New Mexico. Seth is my brother, my little brother. <laughs> he likes to use the term younger, being six foot five. So he's my younger brother. Um, and uh, just happy to be here, happy to be doing this with you all. If you could open your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 5. Not going to be giving an exposition by any means of Isaiah chapter 5 or really uh, the, the scripture, but uh, just taking some things that we see in here, some ideas and some concepts, and really spending some time talking on those. I will be talking to you tonight about postmodernism and morality. And then Seth is going to come up in the second session and he's going to talk about postmodernism and the law. So, I was asking Seth today at lunch, or telling him actually, I said, I don't know how you studied this stuff <laughs> in seminary. It's just, I don't know about you, but I was just kind of like head tilted last night when he was talking, eyes half glazed over until he put up the picture of the Play-Doh, and it was like, oh, okay, I get it. I get it now. I get it. And then I kind of started just scratching my head again, and then there's a little mermaid, and it's like, I get it. I see. Okay. Like, if this makes sense, but... Uh, you know, when he's throwing those big words out and stuff like that, it's just hard, hard sledging. So um, some of the stuff is pretty difficult, especially when you get into their philosophies and theories and their writers, it's pretty difficult to follow. So we'll I just try and look at this as simply as we can. Isaiah 5, beginning in verse 18, Isaiah says, Woe to those who draw iniquity with cords of vanity and sit, Sin as if with a cart rope. They say, let him make speed and hasten his work that we may see it. And let the counsel of the Holy One of Israel draw near and come that we may know it. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and prudent in their own sight. Woe to men mighty at drinking wine. Woe to men valiant for mixing intoxicating drink who justify the wicked for a bribe and take away justice from the righteous man. Therefore, as fire devours the stubble and the flame consumes the chaff, so their root will be as rottenness, and their blossom will ascend like dust, because they have rejected the law of the Lord of hosts and despised the word of the Holy One of Israel. Therefore, the anger of the Lord is aroused against his people. He has stretched out his hand against them and stricken them, and the hills trembled, their carcasses were as refuse in the midst of the streets. For all this, his anger is not turned away, but his hand is stretched out still. Father, we pray you give us light and understanding of your word. I'm going to talk to you about three things tonight that I hope, with God's grace and help, we can understand a little bit more of this society in which we live. 
I'm going to talk to you about the source of postmodern morality, about the standard for postmodern morality, and then I'm going to talk to you about the aggressiveness of postmodern morality. This is the society in which we live. Certainly um, not happy thoughts that we just dived into in Isaiah. God was not pleased with his people at this point. This is in the midst of a series of woes. In Scripture, a woe is usually given imminently preceding judgment. So we kind of tend to think of a woe as, ooh, that's bad, not in the Bible. There's a sense of imminence when a woe comes and when a woe is declared. And so Israel was at this time in a very bad, bad place. So let's start with the source of postmodern morality. You can keep here in Isaiah 5, but I want to speak to you Remind you of the beginning of the book of Ephesians in the New Testament. Paul begins and he says, Blessed be the God and Father, our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him, in love having predestined us to adoption by Jesus Christ to himself, listen to this, according to the good pleasure of his will. Remember that, it's going to be important. To the praise of the glory of his grace, by which he made us accepted in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of his grace, which he made to abound toward us in all wisdom and prudence, having made known to us the mystery of his will, listen to this, according to, the good, according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in himself. We're not going to begin with man, we're going to begin with God. This is important and helpful. Man is made in the image of God. And a fallen man, that image may be greatly effaced, but a fallen man was still originally created in the image of God. And as he lives out his fallenness, you're going to see some correlations that will help you understand postmodernism and the society in which we live. God always does what is pleasing in his sight. God literally has never done anything that's not pleasing to him. This is important. He commands us to do what is pleasing in his sight. But in understanding this, only that which is perfectly good is pleasing to God. A goodness that the only time we would see it would be looking to the pages of Scripture or maybe at the life of Jesus Christ. A goodness that is other. In other words, there's a holiness to his goodness. It's a goodness that's beyond anything we understand, anything we can comprehend, anything that we have seen outside of Christ. So only that which is perfectly good is pleasing to God. He can't be tempted by evil, James teaches us in James 1, because there's nothing good in it. It's evil. And because there's nothing good in it, God, by his perfect nature, finds it absolutely repulsive. There's nothing in him that's drawn to it. This is why the scripture says Christ was tempted and didn't sin, and also says God cannot be tempted. Satan came to Christ, tempted him, but there was nothing inside of Jesus at all even drawn or attracted to it. It's different with us. We can be enticed by it, but not so with the nature of God. So this is under, fundamental to understand. Nothing, nothing that is less than a perfect goodness and meets God's perfect holy standard of goodness is pleasing to him. This is why we need Jesus. We're covered in his righteousness, and therefore he's made us accepted in the beloved. Why? Because the Father is pleased with the righteousness of the Son, which covers us. Okay? So you can count on it with the Lord that he will only do that which is good, because only that which meets his perfect standard of goodness is pleasing to him. So God always does what's good. Why? Because what's good is perfectly pleasing to God. What did he say about Jesus when he spoke from heaven? This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. So you see that. That's the idea there. Okay? Now, when you set aside, that's God, and that's God's nature. When you set aside God's authority, as we saw last night, postmodernism does, you also set aside God's standard of goodness, of holiness, of righteousness, of truth. You set aside all that. In other words, you can't set aside God as a being having personhood 
You can't set that aside and try and keep all the standards that come with it. The standards emanate from who he is. So you get rid of God, and every other standard goes with it, including goodness. That's what happens. So then when in postmodernism, self becomes the authority, as we looked at last night, what you determine then to be good and right is going to be what you believe will please you. That's where people get trapped by the deceitfulness of sin. So when any person abandons the authority of God's word, they are left to themselves to come up with their own morality. God is the lawgiver. So you abandon God's word, you now come up with your own standard, your own morality. It's autonomous, it's based on self. So the authority of God is rejected, and under postmodernism, the authority of self is set up in place of the authority of who God is, which makes self that lawgiver that God is by divine right. Now, it's all a facade. It's all a deceit. God's truly never been removed from being lawgiver. It's just mankind in sinfulness playing games with themselves. But at the end, it's going to be very clear who always has been in authority and that that never changed or was never questioned in heaven. But that's what's happening right now as men walk in deceit. So because the law of God is set aside and the conscience is darkened and blinded, self now determines what is right or what is wrong. And when self is by very nature sinful, then only that which is sinful is going to be what pleases self. This is important to understand. The source of postmodern morality is the self. But I don't want to just say that and then move on. I want to give it great clarity so that you understand exactly how their morality develops and comes about and you know where they're coming from. When we say this, the source of postmodern morality is self, right? They are the determiners of truth, as Seth taught. We have to qualify that biblically, and we would be most accurate to say that the source of postmodern authority is the sinful self. And that's important because you're going to understand where they're coming from. Any philosophy in the world today that does not come from Scripture can essentially be traced back to the outworking, really, of the sinful self. That's where it comes from. When we say people are sinners by nature, we need a working grasp on what kind of a loaded statement that is. And this is something, honestly, it's, it's, I found very much lost in the church. This just understanding of what does it mean when we say people are sinners by nature? What does that mean? You go into any church and you're going to get all kinds of different answers. I've done an experiment before in my own church and I, asked, I, I told everyone, I said, don't raise your hands, and everybody raised their hands anyway. But I, I gave four different options of, do you, what would you say describes man by nature? Three of them were heresies that have been condemned by the church throughout history. And the majority of the people fell into those three heresies. So we have to understand, really, what this means. What does it mean to be a sinner? Well, the Apostle Paul charged the entire known world that they were under sin, stating that in Romans 3, verse 9. And then he goes on, the word charged there being a legal word, speaking of an indictment. We have charged, that's an indictment. And his very next statement is, for it is written. So who's he quoting when he says that? God. And he says this in the first two to three verses of four it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks after God. They have all turned aside. They have together become unprofitable. There is none who does good, no, not one. Later on in Romans 6, he charges that we were, before we were in Christ, we were slaves of sin, meaning those who are not in Christ are slaves of sin. Okay, so what's this mean? Well, that's pretty clear there in Romans 3. None righteous, not one, none who seeks good. So in other words, nobody is looking for God. Right? The big movement about 10 years ago was seekers. I get that, but according to Scripture, it's pretty clear who's seeking who. Now there's a time when the Spirit of God draws and disarms and brings people. 
But in the beginning of it, what does it mean? It means that it must start with God. Why? Because we're sinners. And that's the only reason. It has to start with God. So it's entirely of him. When Adam and Eve first sinned, there was a fundamental change in their nature. They became, by nature, sinful. Before that, they were good. You remember what God said at the end of each day of creation? It's good, it is good, it is good, it is good. And then it all wraps up, the end of Genesis 1, and God says, it's very good. And then what does he do? He plants a garden, and he puts the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, where in the garden? Right in the middle. Now, why would he do that? Because he had said it is good. When God says they are good, speaking of Adam and Eve, and they're created in perfect righteousness, you know how he can show everyone? By putting a tree right in the middle of everything and go, don't eat of it. And they won't even think about it. They didn't. Someone had to come from outside, didn't they? So by God putting that there, what did it demonstrate? It demonstrated exactly what he said. It is good. Because there was no desire, no inclination whatsoever in Adam and Eve to go and eat of the fruit of that tree. They were righteous. They were pure. They were holy. They were perfect. They were good. But then Satan came in, tempted them. They fell. And they became sinful. While they were good, their desire was to please who? God. That's what they were created for, to glorify him. And they wanted that. That was their desire. But when they sinned, and their nature changed, something else changed. You see, they were created to love what they most valued. And being in nature righteous and holy, they most valued God himself. And so they loved him above all. When they became sinful, there was a part of the nature that was still the same. They were still created to love what they most valued. But now who did they value most? Self. And that's the heart, really, of what it means to be a sinner. To be a sinner means that I love, value, cherish, and seek to advance the good and glory of myself above all. This is important. Let me give you an illustration of it. Because you can actually look good doing this, or you can look bad doing this. Let's say I'm driving down the road, and uh, somebody cuts me off. And contrary to any of you that have ever done this, you've probably never done this kind of thing, I have a response that's not good. They cut me off, and I start muttering to myself some choice words. What are they thinking? Well, there's nobody in the car with me from church. So I say those words out loud. Because does that person not know who they have just dishonored? It's me. It was me they cut off. And I'm not content with that. Why? Because it's me. And they obviously do not know the value of me. And so what do I do? I pull up alongside him. I roll down my window. And I start telling the guy driving the car my choice words. Well, he's a sinner too. So how dare I dishonor him like that? Do I not know who I have just dishonored now? And now we're going back and forth driving down the road. Well, now not only did he cut me off, he dared to speak back to me. So now I step on the gas, I cut him off and pull in front of him, and I slam on my brakes. And there's a loaded gun in my door. I slam on my brakes, forcing him to stop, and I open the door and I get out and I look around and I grab the gun and I go up and I unload it in him. Because how dare he talk to me like that? He has dishonored me and devalued me. That's scenario number one. That's an obvious sinner. Scenario number two, that same guy cuts me off and nobody from church is in the car with me. So I'm mad at him, and I'm thinking thoughts about him, and then I start saying those thoughts out loud. But that's not enough, because he's dishonored me. So I pull up alongside him, I roll down my window, and I start yelling words at him, and he starts yelling words back. And now I'm even more mad, because he has dishonored me. So I step on the gas, I pull right in front of him, slam on the brakes, forcing him to stop. 
there's a loaded gun in my door, and you guys happen to be on the sidewalk there, but there's also a policeman right there watching everything. I open the door and I grab the gun and I look and I see all of you and the policeman right there and I go, oh goodness. There's a policeman right there. I would go to prison forever for doing this. And all those people know I'm a pastor. So before I pull the gun up, I just kind of drop it back in the door and I stand up and I turn around and I wave to the guy and I say, I'm so sorry about that. God bless you. Have a wonderful day. In both those situations, I loved myself most. But one of them, you may be standing on the curb going, wow, he's so gracious. That guy was just yelling at him and he just blessed him. Here's how I love myself most. The first one, I got vengeance because how dare he wrong me. Jesus said anger begins in the heart, right? So it started out with evil thinking, which he also, Mark 7 said, begins in the heart comes out of the heart. Then it was me railing on him, which the biblical word is blasphemy. Jesus said that comes out of the heart. Then it goes into evil acts, me murdering him. I was loving myself most in that scenario. Why? Because that man wronged me and I got vengeance for me. But scenario two, I was actually also loving myself most. You know why? Because I saw the policeman there. And I love myself so much I don't want to go to prison. So I didn't kill him. But the exact same motive was ruling in my heart, wasn't it? That's what it means to be a sinner. To be a sinner means self is exalted above all, and decisions are always made for the benefit, satisfaction, and glory of self. So the scripture teaches very clearly that by nature we're sinners. Paul said we were slaves of sin. Every person is by nature slave to their own nature, which, bringing it back to our topic now, the postmodernists and any unbeliever, unregenerate person for that matter, can only live out of their nature. And this is important to understand. They can only live out of their nature. Last night at the back, we were talking about some things, and freedom of the will was mentioned. It's important to define and understand what does that mean. Well, according to Scripture, my will is bound in sin. That means that I'm only going to desire sin. Our will is bound by nature. So is it free? Well, yes, it's free, but it's free within the parameters of its own nature. Is a dog free to be a dog? Well, that almost sounds silly. That's all it can be. That's its nature. Is a dog free to be an elephant? You're not going to see a dog sucking up water with its snout, spraying its back to wash itself. It's not free to do that. Why? That's not its nature. So to be a sinner means that you are bound by your nature. And until Christ makes you a new creation, this is why the new birth is so absolutely necessary, you cannot do otherwise. Now this is important when that sinner that we're describing is creating morality. Because it means that any morality that is created will be true to the nature of the one who created it. That's why the background on being a sinner and what it means is so essential. Sinners free to sin, yes. They're not free to do good. Their nature will not allow it. It's always sinful, even though outwardly it does not look sinful in the example I gave you with the road rage. So the postmodernists then, has made self the authority, self the lawgiver and determiner of truth, and therefore self is the source, the sinful self is the source of postmodern morality. Now, if you're here and you're not a Christian, let me just share with you something. This is what makes the gospel of Jesus Christ so refreshing. This is what makes it water. It's just sweet to the soul. It will satisfy you forever. You see, the, the postmodernist and the humanist looks within for deliverance. They look to create their own morality that will justify them in the end. But it's hopeless. The Christian, the gospel teaches that deliverance can only come from outside of us and that the Spirit of God must make us a new creation and that God desires to do that and that whoever is willing to come to Christ, 
he will receive. If you're not sure if Jesus would take you or not because you've sinned, hear his statement. He doesn't bluff and he doesn't lie because he's the truth. Whoever comes to him, he will in no way cast out. That's your warrant. That's your authority to come to him and to believe in him. So it's important. Last night when I spoke to you about this issue of authority, we didn't really get into the source of it too much. But I went back and staying at my parents and my mom showed me a news story that has gone viral just yesterday. And it happened in our state. So I'm going to read you a portion of, of the news story about this. And I'm going to show you how this works with self being the authority and what that creates as the lawgiver. Because the one who is the, law, the lawgiver, the one who creates the morality, is also the judge of it. They're the standard. So I want you to see what this looks like practically played out in our society in a very real life example. This happened in Albuquerque. The transgender woman at the center of a viral video is speaking out after she claims that she was mistreated by an employee of an Albuquerque video game store. Tiffany Moore said she was returning a video game that she bought for her son shortly after Christmas when the cashier at GameStop on Cruz and Paseo del Norte repeatedly called her by a gender pronoun that she doesn't identify with. In a video posted on YouTube, apparently taken by another customer in the store, Moore can be seen yelling and cursing at the cashier. Ma'am, once again, ma'am, Moore could be heard saying. Moore said she lost her composure and became upset after the cashier repeatedly referred to her as sir and not ma'am. I was so angry at that point because literally five or six times he had called me sir. He got me so fuming angry and I was cussing, Moore said. Moore said she has no regrets about how she reacted during the incident. Yeah, I could have reacted a whole lot better, she said, but you know what? I look back at it, and if I could, I wouldn't change a single thing. I would do it 100,000 times again. I would kick over that display 100,000 times again because my actions were justified. I mean, it was blatant and malicious hate. It was blatant and malicious misgendering. Now, here's the example of the postmodern worldview played out. God is rejected as the ultimate authority, and self is set up as the authority in this place. Self then becomes the standard of morality, which we'll look at next. Self takes the prerogative of creator and determines what to make male and female. Self believes it is right to turn a man into a woman because self has the authority to do so. When someone challenges that authority, even by innocently using the pronoun sir, and I saw the video, it did seem innocent, then that authority pours out its wrath in judgment and is justified for doing so. In this case, because the cashier committed a moral evil by calling this man trying to become a woman, sir. You see how this plays out? That's what it looks like when people become the source of morality. My actions were justified, this man said. I mean, it was blatant and malicious hate. It was blatant and malicious misgendering. Now that teenage cashier, young guy, before God was actually saying it right. That is a man. But this person has set themselves up and created a new standard of morality that they're the source of. And they condemned it and executed wrath on it, saying that it was hate. That's what it looks like. Okay? So self is the source. What's the standard? What's the standard? When self is in the seat of authority, then what is it that becomes a standard for acceptable moral behavior? Well, this is sort of what Isaiah was talking about, calling good evil, calling evil good, where the morality begins to change. What standard are they using? Every lawgiver will always create moral laws 
that are consistent with their own nature. That's why I began teaching you about the nature of God and what pleases him and the nature of the sinner. If you don't understand that, this won't make sense. You have to start there with the nature of things. So every lawgiver will always create moral laws that are consistent with their own nature. Again, God. The Bible teaches God is good, God is holy, God is just, God is love. So we read in Romans 7 that the law of God is holy, just, and good. And the law of God is summed up in one word in Galatians, love. Why is the law of God that? Because God is that. So God cannot make anything other than that which perfectly reflects, rightly reflects his nature. Those things in the law are pleasing things to God. He's never found them in man, but he's found them in his son. He's found them on the cross because Christ, as Isaiah said, upheld the law and made it honorable. Well, with postmodernism, self is the lawgiver and therefore morality in, the po in postmodernism and with the postmodernist is consistent with the sinful nature because it's the sinful nature that's the lawgiver. It's the seat of morality. So it's going to be consistent with the sinful nature. Well, Scripture says Christ is the end of the law to everyone who believes. Christ is the one in whom the Father is well pleased. But in postmodernism, it's the pleasure of self that is the standard of postmodern morality. You see, any time the standard of morality is based upon the individual, the morality will always be based upon what pleases that individual and what does not hinder that individual from fulfilling his or her desires. God does his will. Why? Well, his will is good and pleasing. He would never do it if it wasn't that. Same thing with postmodernists. They create the morality. Why? Because in their sight, they're doing what's right in their own eyes, and this is good and pleasing to them. Seth mentioned last night the concept, the postmodern concept, whatever floats your boat, whatever makes you happy, that's postmodernism. That's its morality scene. That's the idea. So the postmodern standard of morality, it rests largely with the individual, which I'll get to later, but it comes out of a desire to please that individual, whatever they believe is going to please them most and satisfy them most, because that's what they would believe to be good. What you feel and what you believe is going to please you is also what you believe is good. This is good. This is right. Even if for a time it may be difficult, but in the end, it'll be satisfying. So that's the morality. That's where it comes out of. That's why, again, explaining the natures, because what you see with the postmodernists is the desire to satisfy self is at the heart of all of their morality. That's how it works. Hey, do what's right for you. Do what you feel is best. Do what you want. Now, we would look at that and go, well, that's not wise. They don't view it as a wisdom, non-wisdom thing. This is a moral issue for them. In other words, if they think that it's right, if they think that it's best, if they want to do it, that's a moral issue with them. So it's not a parent teaching a child going, well, son, I'm not sure if that's best. No, 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 no. If I am the seat of morality, then if I desire to do that, who are you to hinder me from that? It's a morality to them. So, because of that, because it's seen as morally right, that's where the standard comes in. Good is called evil. Evil is called good. So take, here in Isaiah, those calling evil good and good evil. Darkness for light, light for darkness. Bitter for sweet, sweet for bitter. The next thing he says, that they're wise in their own eyes. So they set aside God's law, which says things, condemns things like, well, anything that's not love, really. Fornication, drunkenness, on and on and on and on. You name the sin. And they would say, well, that's not bad. That person is just expressing themselves. And they believe that that person should express themselves if that's what feels best to them. That's the morality, is self-satisfaction. So while the Christian has an ally in God, the postmodernist has an ally in the flesh, 
This is where you really get to see it. It's if you understand the nature of the flesh, you'll understand it. The nature of the flesh is to continually lust. Now, we, heard, we hear the word lust, and we tend to only associate it with sexual sin. It's not just sexual sin. It's the nature of the flesh. In other words, your flesh can do nothing but lust. You might see it in sexual sin with certain groups. Maybe men may tend to struggle more with pornography or things like that. But you generally don't see a group of men standing around staring at a chocolate cupcake going, oh my goodness. Right? It's What is it? It's the flesh lusting, desiring, either for something it sh- should not desire or in a way that it should not desire it. And so then it becomes a matter of degree of how the flesh is going to carry out its lust. But that's the flesh. It's continually seeking to satisfy itself. So any philosophy it's going to create, its ultimate end is going to justify the satisfaction of itself. Now, postmodernism works perfectly for that because by its nature, postmodernism removes boundaries. And this is where it's so dangerous to our culture and our churches. You see, in every other culture, non-Western cultures, there's cultural boundaries that postmodernism couldn't totally work with. Either religious, uh, either family, societal structures, there's boundaries. They got their issues too. But in our society, postmodernism removes boundaries. And the moral standard becomes, if you want to do it and you feel like it's right, you should do it. That becomes the moral standard. There's no inhibition. The flesh is never satisfied, and so it's happy under this, and it's continually pushing boundaries. That's the nature of it. So the flesh will always flourish. It'll be on big display in any sort of postmodern society. This standard of morality is autonomous. It's a person's, it's a personal standard. It's what's right for me, and then as Seth taught, they're big on community. You get together into communal groups, and then it becomes what's right for the community so long as you join us. The Bible describes that doing what's right in our own eyes. But morality then in the postmodern mind becomes personal and it becomes local. So any standard morality is personal. It's isolated, which means it's mine. I'm the judge of it. You can't question it. And so long as you agree with me that we can get together, this is ours, we're the judges of it, but you better not question it. You challenge it, you're going to get a visceral response from us. But if you're in harmony with it, you agree with it, then we can be together. So, so long as we agree on all this, then we can be together, which shows their concept of unity. And this plays out in the church. Unity is based upon community. That's the exact opposite of Scripture. In the Scripture, community comes from unity. In other words, we all believe in Jesus Christ. Therefore, we are members of his body that community. It starts with truth. Truth creates community. And we're at odds with each other in the church if one of us is at odds with God and the truth. If we're walking in the truth, we're in fellowship with one another, John says in 1 John. This is important. I told you where I live, Santa Fe. Um, we're the center of a lot of this stuff. I had a pastor come to me once years ago, and he was starting a big unity thing and uh, with different churches, and I knew him previously and had my reservations, so I started asking him questions about it, and he said, we just want to worship. We just want to, we just want to worship Jesus and pray. I said, okay, who's, who's a part of this? Who's praying? He named a whole bunch of people that, I mean, don't even hold the Orthodox Christian faith, historical Christian faith. And I started asking him questions, and he kind of got real squirrely. I was asking definitive, clear answers. And he started giving very generic, broad, non-definitive answers. And so I finally asked him, I said, let me just ask you something. Do you believe that unity comes from community, or that community comes from unity? I thought about it, and he said, I believe unity comes from community. In other words, we all get together and we go, hey, we need to be unified. 
Let's be unified. Let's get together. And so we all agree, what? To be unified. Instead of, this is the truth. Do you believe it? Good, I believe it too. We're in unity. You see? If community creates the unity, there's no absolutes. This is the basis of unity in the church. We don't get this. We're not going to be able to preserve unity in our bodies. So it's important. So it's autonomous. But remember what we saw in Romans. When men reject and suppress God's truth, they what? They profess to be wise, Paul wrote. That means, in Christian terms, they preach. They profess to be wise. They preach it. They preach what they believe. They evangelize. Whatever their philosophy or doctrine is. I don't know if you caught what Seth said in his first teaching, but they get very angry at missionaries, and they will talk to missionaries about how wrong it is to go to another culture and evangelize them. Did you see and catch the hypocrisy in that? Okay, wait. You're sitting here telling me that I shouldn't go to them and tell them what I believe, but you're sitting here, you're sitting here telling me what, I, what you believe. And that's right for you, but I shouldn't go and do it to the other culture. That's what happens. They go and they begin to preach it. So Seth talked about in the overview, they form communities, they hold the same view, highly communal, highly local. This is where the statement, it takes a village to raise a child, comes out of. That's the concept. So that creates some strength in their view, at least within a society. Their moral standards is also subjective. Could take a lot of time on this, but I'm going to try and just go through it on the subjective aspect. Since the source of the morality is the individual, then the morality changes from individual to individual. There's no universal, there's no unchanging basis. A, an easy example, that always an easy example, they're almost a punching bag, would be politicians. So the famous, I did vote for it before I voted against it. That's this kind of stuff. It's always changing. It's always changing. What's your standard? Where are you coming from? There's no universal standard which makes it subjective. And since morals are the foundation of ethics, there's no universal, unchanging ethical basis on which they make decisions. And that is important because they're passing laws for you to live under. But that's where this is coming out of. So because it's subjective, it's also selective. In other words, it does not extend to all areas of life. Let me give you a couple of examples. You will never find a postmodernist living their worldview out when it comes to stoplights. Today, green for me is red. I believe red is green. It's subjective. They're not going to do that. Why? Well, they don't want to die by doing that. So it's subjective, which means you really don't know where anyone's morality is at at a given time. You don't know if you're going to make someone mad. You don't know if what they voted for last year, they vote for this year. It's completely subjective, and they, they're okay with that. Now, what's that going to produce? Well, one thing it's going to produce is a society of unfaithful people that you cannot trust. What did Jesus say is going to happen at the end? Because lawlessness will abound, the love of many will grow cold. This is what it looks like with lawlessness abounding. We have to be careful as a church that in the midst of that, our love doesn't grow cold because it's a big temptation. The standard, while it's subjective, it's not in every spot, and this is where it gets tricky. The standard is absolute regarding morals. And let me explain what I mean by that. Their great moral is do what you think is right, do what feels best, do what you want. Now, in that sense, it is absolute. That is their moral of how they live. That's the standard of all their morality. Do what you feel is best, do what you want, do what pleases you. So just as the rejection of absolute authority by the postmodernists doesn't mean that they don't believe in authority. Remember we talked about that last night? They believe in authority. Well, their rejection of morals, where they call good evil and evil good and set up themselves as the source of morality and the standard of morality, that doesn't mean they don't have a set of morals that they operate by. They do. And they are very strong in that sense, morally. They are very driven in that sense, morally. Now, it's not moral in the sense of upright before God, but it is moral in the sense of it has a morality, a moral framework in which they are operating 
out of. So their rejection of absolute morals does not mean that they don't believe in morals. It means that they now are the standard and definer of the absolute morals. Hence, they call good evil, evil good. In Isaiah's day, the problem was that the people were changing the morals. The absolute moral law of God was disregarded. That's what he said. I don't know if you caught it. Towards the end of that, in the end of verse 24, because they have rejected the law of the Lord of hosts. Do you see how this works? They reject the law of the Lord of hosts. God's law is rejected. They set themselves up as the source and standard for it. This is no longer good. This is evil. This is no longer evil. This is good. That's exactly what, that's exactly what Isaiah is describing was happening. Exactly what we're seeing today. So they were changing the morals. Absolute moral law of God was disregarded, called a bad thing, and that which the law condemned was then exalted and called a good thing. That's to adopt the moral position of the flesh as a good thing that's to be championed and even followed. So the flesh, the self, is now given moral license and justification to indulge itself. And there's a moral justification for it. If you were to open up, I don't recommend this, read right in the very beginning of the Satanic Bible written by Anton LaVey. Sometimes they'll call it the Black Bible because it's evil. Before any of their teachings, before any of the things they get into, it says this, the cardinal virtue of the Satanic Church is indulgence, not abstinence. That's the cardinal virtue. Do what you want. And don't let anyone tell you otherwise. Do what makes you happy. Do what pleases you. Now you see where postmodernism comes from. I mean, the Satanic Bible, they make no bones about it. They're not embarrassed. They're pretty bold about it. So we have our battle lines clearly drawn. The fruit of the Spirit is love, self-control. Lust of the flesh is the exact opposite of this. Seek to satisfy self first. Indulge. Throw self-control out the window. You've heard of binging on alcohol. Postmodernism gives a person license to binge on the flesh, whatever it wants. That's what this is. Now, where do we see this? Well, I'm just going to give you some easy examples. Look around. All successful marketing caters to this. Let me give you a few, and you're going to see this idea. Nike, what's their motto? Just do it. Burger King, remember they're famous? Your way right away. Which if you ever try to order a Whopper without onions, they're not totally true to their motto. They don't always get it right. But anyway, this Um, Wrigley's Double Mint, right? This was gone back in 1959. Double your pleasure, double your fun. Right? What's it all about? Having fun, being pleased. Outback, remember their famous one? No rules, just right. See where all this comes from? It caters to the flesh. That's why it's so appealing. It's because postmodernism finds strong grip in the flesh. Well, final point I want to talk to you about is the aggressiveness of postmodern morality. This is where the rubber meets the road. You see a little bit now, where does all this stuff come from? Why do they think this? How could they believe that way? Now you see why, I hope. But now what I want you to see is the aggressiveness of it, because this is what you're probably going to deal with at home, at work, at school, wherever it is that you may be, where you may run into this worldview. There's a lot of reasons that postmoderns are so aggressive with the morality, and they are evangelists with it. But there's a lot of reasons. I'm going to give you two main ones under which the majority of the other ones may fall. The two main ones, at least that we'll talk about tonight, are this. First, a universal standard of morality based upon higher authority. God church, government, whatever it may be, sounds like blasphemy to them. So any universalist standard of morality, you go to them with that, you start talking along those lines, to their ears, it sounds like blasphemy. 
I'll explain it in a minute. Second is this. The morality of the postmodernists is deeply, deeply held, and therefore they believe they are in a fight for justice. Remember, these are the reasons why it's so aggressive. So the first one, the universal standard of morality based upon any higher authority sounds to them like blasphemy. The one great moral absolute of postmodernism is, remember, there are no universal moral absolutes. There are absolute truth. There is no absolute truth. That's theirs. So there's a great, that's the great command they follow. That would be theirs. That's also the source of the morality. So understand, they have that strong morality we talked about. It's not right. It's real, though. But it's a completely wrong type of morality. It's not godly. It's not based upon truth. So when you go to them, and when you start speaking, speaking to them in terms of absolutes, the way they hear that, it sounds like horrible blasphemy. Just as for the Christian, it would tear you up inside, even anger you to hear Jesus blasphemed and mocked and railed upon, and you would have to put your foot down and stop, and you would have to say something. Well, that's what it sounds like to them when you start talking about universal absolutes, statements about absolute truth, absolute authority, you are blaspheming against their most deeply held belief. That's what's happening, and that creates a very visceral and aggressive response in the postmodernists. So the pastor has a young couple come to the church, and let's say they're a postmodernist couple. Boyfriend and girlfriend, they're living together, sleeping together. Pastor doesn't go off on a tirade or anything like that. Just starts meeting with them, sharing Christ with them. And at some point, he calls them to repent and believe. Who are you to judge us? This is what we've never liked about Christians. You're just a bunch of bigots. What have you done? You've blasphemed their God. Why? Because they're their God. And they have said, this is right and this is okay. And you've brought an absolute in and said it's not. You've struck the core of their belief system. You've laid the axe to the root of the tree. And that's why you see that kind of response. If that tree topples, their entire moral framework, their entire worldview, and their entire belief system comes crashing down. And that's a frightening thing. That's why you see the response. To put it simply, honestly, you can look at it like this in one way. A moralist gets mad when you lie. Postmodernist gets mad when you tell them the truth. Because you're claiming something they don't believe you have any right to claim. Now, the Christian knows, I'm not claiming this for myself. I'm not saying that I'm the creator of this or anything like that. I'm saying, this is what God has revealed. This is what God has said. Well, the postmodernist would say, has God really said? That's a quote, if you caught it, from Genesis 3. So this is also where uh, you can see some holes exposed uh, in their argument. We're going to move on. When a Christian comes along, says these things, there is a universal, absolute truth. Every man must give account to God. Exposes things, conviction is brought. You saw this with Christ. When Jesus exposed the false morality, hypocrisy, and phony love of the Pharisees, do you remember how they responded? Let me give you one example. This comes out of Mark 3. Only chapter 3. Not very far into his ministry. He entered the synagogue again, and a man was there who had a withered hand, so they watched him closely whether he would heal him on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. And he said to the man who had the withered hand, Step forward. Then he said to them, Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to eat, do evil, to save life or to kill? But they kept silent, avoiding clear, simple, absolute statements. And when he had looked around at them with anger, being grieved by the hardness of their hearts, he said to the man, Stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out, and his hand was restored as whole as the other. Now listen to this. Then the Pharisees went out and immediately plotted with the Herodians against him how they might destroy him. That was only the third chapter of Mark. And we need to remember as disciples of Jesus, Jesus was not crucified because of his good deeds, good deeds and his miracles. It was his words that got him killed. You can be a Christian. You can skate by in life. Being good and doing good, but staying silent. It's when you speak that you get yourself in trouble. 
That's okay, Christian. It's a part of the calling. And we don't need to be afraid of it. Because God will be with us in what may come. So, their morality is deeply held. Second point, their morality is deeply held. And therefore, they believe they're in a fight for justice. And that is why. That is why. They are so aggressive. The first one, you see there's a spiritual dynamic to it. There's conviction involved. There's things being exposed. This one, it's a spiritual dynamic as well, but it looks a little bit different. Few things are as strong of a motivator as believing that the cause that you fight for is just. If you've been alive for at least 30 to 40 years, have you noticed how in the last 15, everything is now a cause for justice? Everything. The little word justice, is it's attached to everything. Social justice, economic justice, and on and on and on and on. Everything is a justice cause now. Why? Because postmodernism is everywhere. And this is what they believe. Now, Scripture teaches us the law is based upon one word, love. Right? Galatians 5.14, for all the laws fulfilled in one word, even in this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. So love is what the morality of the law of God is based upon. Now, when those who call good evil and evil good begin to spread their message through society, you're going to see it spread like leaven. It may start out with a few, maybe just a few Ivy League universities, a few books, a few seminaries. The scripture says a little leaven leavens a whole batch of dough. And so over time, what happens is the morals of the society are redefined. What was good 50 years ago is now considered evil. And what was evil 50 years ago is now considered good. This is important because this ties into justice. Justice is a thing you champion, you push for, you fight for, you progress forward for. There's an aggression to it. I'm going to give you an example. Again, only an example from our own society. Psychologists use something called the Diagnostics and Statistics Manual to give a diagnosis of a mental illness. It's referred to the DSM. Uh, new editions will come out from time to time, not every year or anything, somewhat infrequently. But the first edition was printed in 1952. Homosexuality in the first DSM was classified as, quote, a sociopathic personality disturbance. It's 1952. The second edition came out in 1968 of the DSM. Homosexuality was listed in that manual as a mental illness. There was where you saw the first change. It was, it was downgraded slightly, especially in the strength of the language that was used. This is where you see the first change, okay? Psychology does have, not have any Christian roots in it. So 1952 to 1968 is considered and it's listed as a mental illness, but that's the first change. Prior to that, the society had always thought of homosexuality not as a mental illness, but as a moral wrong. It was changed to a mental illness. 1973, the American Psychiatric Association, usually goes by the name of the APA or the Michels, the APA, asked all of its members that were attending its convention to vote on whether they believed homosexuality to be a mental disorder. Like two or three months prior, uh, Australia had said it wasn't a mental disorder. So at this point, it still is considered that. 5,854 psychiatrists voted to remove homosexuality from the DSM. 3,810 voted to retain it. So they compromised and they listed it as, quote, a sexual orientation disturbance. Now, this is, this is supposed to be the medical field. And they're taking votes on what's medically and supposedly scientifically accurate. You know, that'd be like, in our field, that'd be like the church going, uh, who votes this is the will of God? Okay, let's say we have 54, believe, vote this is the will of God, 46 don't. All right, this is the will of God. This is the will of God. But what are you going to do when you have no absolute standard? That's how you have to determine truth, isn't it? So that's how this particular field uh, works. So it wasn't completely removed from the DSM until 1987, 1992. President Clinton gets in, I think three days after he lifts the ban on 
gays in the military between 1998 and 2008, 29 states made constitutional amendments to their charters that marriage is between one man and one woman, with one more state making 30 joining them in 2012. Then in 2015, five people, five justices on the Supreme Court overturned the voice of the people in those 30 states and gave a ruling granting same-sex marriage. Do you remember how that was celebrated by many groups in the United States? They celebrated it as an act of justice, and their banner statement was, love wins. That's their morality. That's what they say is love. It doesn't meet God's definition or standard of love at all. But that's what happened just last week now, 2019. The APA released a very controversial report on the treatment of men and masculinity. Masculinity. That's a thing that needs to be treated now by psychiatrists. Modern psychology has fully abandoned the view now. They had just over 50 years ago that effeminate men have a sickness, and with breakneck speed, they're embracing the view that it is masculine men now that have the sickness. Good is now evil. Evil is now good. The law of God, which is summed up in one word, love, is now evil. The law of man has replaced it with the claim of what? Love wins. Many people felt in that with all their heart like justice was served. Now, I want you to notice the progression. I gave you that just as an example. Incidentally, Christianity stands separate from all that. But scripture has always said it's sin. And sort of like what I, where I live, I've always worked with homosexual people. One of them asked me at one point, he said, Ryan, what does God say about homosexuals? I looked at him and I said, Josh, he loves them. He sent Christ to die for them. But I went on to explain to him, I said, but you guys don't understand. Even if you weren't homosexual, you would still go to hell for all your other sins. It's the fact that you're a sinner that you need to repent of and believe in Christ. It's not just one sin that Jesus calls you to turn away from. It's sin, the whole of it. So that's how the church has always viewed it. We've just called him to Christ not done some of these horrible therapies that psychiatry has. But I want you to see the progression in this example. From morally wrong to morally neutral. From being a sin to being a sickness. It's categorized as a mental illness, and that's how society saw it. But then going from morally neutral, right? There's nothing, there's nothing wrong about being sick. What's evil about cancer? Is it bad? Oh, it's bad. But cancer in and of itself has no morality to it. So it's a sickness, it's neutral. But then it goes from what? Morally neutral to morally right. No longer categorized as a mental illness, but as a thing to rejoice in. And then it goes from morally right to codified law. It is now the law of the land. And you have to honor it. The laws of a country will always follow the morality of the country. And this is the ultimate end of where postmodernism and their morality is headed to become the law of the land. And that's important to understand because Christians have slept through this one for a long time. People will try and say, well, you can't legislate morality. That's not correct. The only thing you can legislate is morality. While it's true that laws don't make a person good or bad, that's usually what people will sort of mean when they say that, laws don't make a person moral or immoral. It's also true that law is always built upon a firm moral foundation. So if we wanted to say it properly, you cannot legislate without morality. There's a moral framework from which you are working to establish just and right laws. So postmodernism begins with the moral view of the world that plays itself out in the court of law. And this is seen in the history of Isaiah, in the, in the history of Israel, in the book of Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 5, what are they doing? They're calling good evil and evil good. You get to Isaiah chapter 10. Isaiah history goes on, and it was not woe to those who call good evil and evil good, 
But now what Isaiah is saying in Isaiah 10 is, woe to those who decree unrighteous decrees, who write misfortune which they have prescribed. It went from a morality where they called it this, to legislating it, to where they decreed it. That's the end to which the postmodern worldview is destined. It will codify its worldview into law, and then being law, it will execute justice upon those who violate that law. It's no wonder then that later in the book of Isaiah, after Israel had redefined God's morality and rewritten it into law, that Isaiah says this in Isaiah 59, justice is turned back and righteousness stands afar off. For truth is fallen in the street, and equity cannot enter. So truth fails, and he who departs from evil makes himself a prey. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your truth, which is absolute, Lord. It's our compass. And we are not our own compass because we would go in circles. We pray you would guard us. We pray you would keep us. We pray, God, that you would give us grace and courage to stand up for the truth and depart from evil, Lord, in this society in which we live. And we pray that you would do this, Father, for Jesus' sake. Amen.